Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in from wherever you are around the world. Well, what a lot is going on. Hancock, blimey, raises so many questions. And there are questions that I'm going to be addressing uh, at the live show at King's Place, which is being streamed live and is live in the main hall. Uh, I'll tell you the structure of our evening together in a second, but if you're listening to this podcast on Sunday, it's tomorrow night at 7. If you're listening on Monday, it's tonight at 7. And if you're listening later on in the week, you've missed the live event, but it's available on the King's Place website. The streamed event is available for a week. Uh, So this is what we're going to do together uh, tomorrow night tonight or whenever you are listening to this podcast, but it's Monday night. I'm going to begin with Hancock and the Hancock saga and the significance of his replacement and the way that whole sequence was reported. It raises many interesting questions Uh, and I'm going to segue neatly from Hancock to Frosty Lord David Frost and Brexit because, as we've discussed so many times on this podcast, Brexit is not done, but I've kind of, as a service to uh, rock and roll politics communities around the world, I I mean, Frosty turns down most broadcast interviews. The Ma programme bits in a bid each week and he turns it down. But he can't turn down select committees, so he's done quite a few of those and others, and I've been following what he's been saying. And I'll be taking a light-hearted look at Frosty's comments because it tells us so much about his attitude towards Europe and Johnson's attitude and Brexit and so on. And in both cases, we'll be looking at some of the evidence provided for us by Dominic Cummings. Now, Cummings, for reasons I'll talk about, is a fascinating character, but some of the evidence he's providing is, you know, what historians would call the the kind of fundamental basic evidence it's it's real-time texts and emails and so on and they are revealing and in uh, in some ways counterintuitive in some ways damning in some ways not about Johnson Cummings and others and in a way my thoughts about Hancock are partly but only partly counterintuitive anyway that's some of what we'll be doing uh, at King's Place Tomorrow night, tonight, or whatever, Monday night. Uh, We'll also um, be analysing the by-election coming up in Batley and Spen. And that will segue neatly into your thoughts and my reflections on Starmer and what happens if Labour loses. No one knows. Polls are very unpredictable. Um, so there will be something on that. <clears throat> there will be your unreliable predictions. And if you're streaming, you'll have a chance to make predictions. I won't tell you what it's going to be on yet. And if you're in the hall, obviously it will be live in the hall. And we can discuss your predictions together live, just like the olden days. You know, theatre, musical, the whole thing. Um, so that's uh, tomorrow, and you can get the tickets in the hall. There are a few in the hall available on the King's Place website. So go there if you want to come and join in and discuss and engage live 
physically, so to speak. Uh, if you can't make it, you can join, get those stream tickets and join in. What do they say on LBC? Join the conversation um, because it's going to be a big night, a sort of Hancock half hour special. Um, I won't do half an hour on Hancock. I say we'll delve deeper on the Hancock front, if I can put it that way. Um, and indeed, I think some of the kind of coverage beyond the <clears throat> extraordinary drama of the photo and video footage of <clears throat> Hancock, some of the coverage hasn't delved as deep as perhaps it is uh, kind of justified or, or merits. Uh, yeah, because it has implications for the NHS, for the pandemic, as well as what it tells us about Johnson and Hancock and so on. Uh, oh, I could carry on, but I'm going to be carrying on live tomorrow night. So because we're all going to gather, hopefully for that tomorrow night, either in the hall or streaming, for now, in this podcast, I'm going to just stick to some of your brilliant questions, which uh, go into a wide range of other things. Uh, Dr. Rob Watson, if you remember, uh, Rob emailed some time ago with a very interesting observation that perhaps one of the biggest divides in British politics is over housing. Those who own homes, including many in those red wall seats, and those who don't and can't afford to, and sometimes can't even afford the rent in places. And that has so many interesting implications, including a partial explanation as to why the red wall has gone Tory. Loads of people uh, go up to... Um, these seats from London say, oh, these poor people, they're terrible. And they arrive and find a bunch of homeowners with big cars in the drive. Um, now, obviously, the homes are much cheaper than in other parts of the country and so on, but it isn't big divide. Rob Watson wonders whether another divide will be on which party, Labour or the Tories, can come up with an agenda which will be wide-ranging, to make sure that Britain doesn't suffer from a pandemic in the same way as it has done this way, in every sense, economically, in terms of education, and in terms of readiness for the next blitz, <clears throat> whatever form it takes. I think, obviously, post-pandemic politics will be different in lots of ways to pre-pandemic politics, and a defence against another pandemic, I think, will become more pivotal, central to political debate than uh, orthodox defence issues. <clears throat> and so, as ever, I think Rob is on to something interesting. I wonder how central it will be at the time of the next general election, when, assuming we're out of this, there will probably be a sense of liberation that we're out of it, um, rather than anxiety about the next one actually being central to determining the outcome of the election but who knows because we're not out of it yet so it's quite hard to read uh, Noah Keat writes <clears throat> he says that sorry I'm I'm a bit throaty uh, today I'm fine I've been running and stuff um, as I know you will all be doing now or making bread um, but I'm fine bit but a bit throaty uh, Noah, I'm writing to comment on your podcast theme of former ministers and prime ministers leaving Parliament at a young age for a post-political career. 
This is evident with ministers from both the new Labour and coalition governments. It sure is. Just think of them all. This is me speaking now, you know. We've heard a lot about Cameron recently, and then there's Nick Clegg at Facebook, and in the Blair era, a lot of the sort of Blairite ministers left. Uh, but Noah says, I would argue that Margaret Beckett is the exception to this rule. Having been in Parliament since 1983 continuously, and first serving from 1974, it's admirable that she's remained an MP years after leaving the Labour front bench. Does this demonstrate that politicians leaving Parliament at a young age after leaving high office is not an inevitability? Yeah, it's a good example. And her experience makes a difference too, because there have been moments where Margaret Beckett has spoken really authoritatively, partly based on her political past. She was brilliant in the Brexit debates in the Commons, arguing against Brexit. And she did so as someone who was a very strong supporter of out in the 1975 referendum, as one example. In the Corbyn era too, she was able to contextualise. Uh, she was of the left in the 70s and then, of course, served in the Blair government. And that kind of experience adds a weightiness to politics that... it. On the whole, as you say, she's the exception that proves the role, the rule. There aren't enough of them. More of them should have stayed in the Commons. Look at the authority of Ken Clark, who continued to speak until the last election, with influence and weight. I think George Osborne would have been a big player if he had stayed in the Commons. I know he's got 48 jobs now and is very wealthy, but he loves politics and probably would have loved staying in the House of Commons. They all rush off far too quickly. Margaret Beckett didn't. She served in a long-serving cabinet, became foreign secretary, uh, and has always been able to add context to contemporary debates. I often say on this podcast, consequences is one of the key words in politics. Context is another and I, there are certain political journalists who don't contextualise fast-moving events as if they all happen, fallen from the sky one after another. Uh, Margaret Beckett offers context. Another favourite word of mine. Thank you, Noah. Andrew Mulholland. Um, OK, yeah, oh, this is about... Uh, oh, on to more important things. Uh, in my garden, my courgettes are ready. Oh, yeah, this is from Italy. Um, and frankly, they are superb. A simple risotto with sage, garlic, black pepper and white wine sets them off perfectly. Andrew has sent in recipes in the past. There's another one. We'll have to probably buy our courgettes, though some might be growing them, but no doubt flourishing where you are. He wonders, Andrew, that in election manifestos, whether there should be a caveat saying... These are statements of intent, but subject to events. This would be a get-out-of-jail card with um, things like the so-called triple lock, you know, the triple lock on pensions, etc., or when Clegg did his dramatic U-turn on tuition fees. <clears throat> the problem is, Andrew, that in Britain, general elections are sort of a fantasy world where claims are made and asserted, and if there are any qualifications to those claims, all hell breaks loose. 
And then, as you suggest, the winning governing party becomes trapped by the manifesto commitments, as we're seeing now with this government and that silly triple lock. Um, but there is no room for nuance in British general elections. Um, they are kind of unsubtle battles for power. And I think parties have to frame things accordingly. Uh, actually, the 97 Labour manifesto was an example of a very cautious incrementalist manifesto, in some ways too much so. If you remember, they pledged to stick to income tax levels and spending levels, and then found they had a massive public service crisis on their hands, um, but because of their manifestos, <coughs> couldn't invest adequately until the second term. Uh, thank you for that. Enjoy the courgettes. Blimey. Um, I, well, I live it vicariously. You know, the, the lives of these podcast listeners in the sun and even in Britain doing fantastic things. I kind of, I'm just sitting here with my microphone, but I'm living it all vicariously. Uh, Jordan Wonder. Sorry, Jordan, I haven't got your surname, but it's an interesting question. How and when are rising stars or future leaders spotted? Does this generally happen early in their political career? Boris and Dodgy Dave, as he calls it, seem to have been touted from an early point, whereas May seemed to fall into the job later on. Was Blair tipped for greatness early on? Major or Thatcher, Heath, Wilson? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, this. Um, and the fascinating thing with most who become prime minister is that they weren't tipped for greatness early on. You're right to suggest that Johnson and Cameron, these two Etonian figures of uh, intense ambition, uh, rising almost from the competitive culture of Eton, were spotted early on as figures of some significance, the significance being uh, ill-defined and in some ways, as we now know, wholly unjustified. Um, but th that's quite unusual. May, in some ways, is more typical of being seen. You know, she was in the mix of potential future leaders. Um, but even in the leadership contest, which she ended up winning, she didn't begin as favourite. Johnson did, but he then famously backed out of that one uh, when Gove inserted his potent knife. Um, Blair was talked a lot with Brown about being a possible leader. But because John Smith was leader uh, after the 92 election and had only just been elected by a landslide, there was no sense of an imminent vacancy. Heath was widely respected but wasn't necessarily seen as a future leader. Wilson only... Uh, by the kind of late 50s, early 60s, he'd been around a long time by then, was seen in that light, but only by some and by no means definitively. So quite often rising stars don't make it. And those that do were not seen in that light for reasons that might be worth exploring at some point. And I'll let you into a secret, all of you and Jordan. Uh, the next book I'm writing, which will be out and I'll talk about it more nearer the time, in early September, is prime ministers we never had. And quite a few of them were rising stars, but they didn't rise to the very top. Why? Why? To be followed up soon. Okay, uh, Neil uh, writes, I have a horrible feeling Johnson believes something uh, that all our problems will fade away, leaving him to be acclaimed a saviour 
in a sort of Churchillian way. It scares me, and I wondered what you felt. Is this working with destiny a common feeling for the very powerful? Um, oh, yeah, Neil's in the mountains um, and uh, uh, of Scotland, yeah, and it stopped raining there, he says, um, and he's going out into them. Uh, yeah, it's actually people who get to the top and Johnson is partly a sort of fantasist he's he's not really interested in human beings as complex human beings he's not a good judge of character but he's fascinated by legends the legend of Churchill the legend of Shakespeare the book he was writing as the um, pandemic was moving towards the UK apparently Um, and he no doubt would like to see himself a Churchillian legend I think most people who become prime minister for a short time feel a sense of destiny, uh, but only for a short time. When I wrote my book on prime ministers, as distinct from prime ministers we never had, I was struck by, on the whole, how miserable they were and how tough they found it. But at the beginning, they've done something that most of their colleagues would have ached to have done, got to the very top. And I do think they feel that it is that, that fate is commanding them to lead. And then all hell breaks loose and they find that destiny for them is a terrible time and an election defeat, say, um, or a referendum defeat or whatever. Um, but Johnson, I think, does and is influenced by Churchill. Enjoy the mountains, uh, Neil, and look forward to hearing from you again. Uh, James Osborne wonders, modern political history has shown us that Labour leaders are at their most electorally potent when they are fresh faces at the point of a general election. Wilson, Blair, especially when a Tory government is as tenured as it is now. Uh, yeah, absolutely, uh, James. In fact, it's, it's more precise than that. The only Labour leaders of the opposition to win an election have been uh, Wilson and Blair, and they both came in mid-term. Those late Labour leaders who were elected at the beginning of a parliament have all gone on to lose. Uh, Corbyn, Miliband, Kinnock. Uh, Mid-term, and you've got a chance. And I kind of know what James might be implying by that. Okay, from Leslie Buchanan, Barcelona calling again. You see what I mean? We're international, we're global. We've heard from Italy and Courgette Risotto and now Barcelona. Uh, Leslie wonders, in the excitement of the Chesham and Amersham by-election, it's easy to forget that we've been here many times before. I fear I'm old enough to remember the Orpington by-election of 1962. Bloody hell, Leslie, I have this image of you in Barcelona at nightclubs and rocking the Barcelona scene. Um, Anyway, that kind of hints at your age. Yeah, he was only a toddler then. Uh, It was a historic by-election. As as Leslie writes, the Liberals overturned a huge Tory majority. Uh, But just as in Cheshire, in the 1964 election that followed, they made only modest gains from six to nine seats. And their leader at the time, Joe Grimmond, was a much more heavyweight politician than Ed Davey. Yep. I agree. And I don't think, uh, Leslie, that the most significant aspect of that Chesham by-election was what it will do to the Lib Dems. As we discussed last week, I wonder 
whether it will have an impact on the sense of Johnson being this extraordinary election winner for the Conservatives, a perception that gives him a total power over his government and control over policies like Brexit, where there's no internal scrutiny at, at all, at cabinet level or at any other level. So, um, yeah, good point, uh, Leslie. Uh, the the by-election for the Lib Dems tells us less, except that post-coalition they struggle with this. They have become a vehicle of protest at least again, whereas post-coalition, uh, until under Vince Cable, where their sort of pro-Europeanism helped them a lot in certain elections, um, that was a problem. That, that people have, are now saying, yeah, we can vote for them again, in a way that they didn't when their credibility was shot in the coalition era. Okay, uh, finally, uh, 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 from Kevin, uh, yeah, got a, oh yeah, Kevin Mather, because uh, Kevin makes it absolutely clear. It's pronounced Kevin Mather. Now, he listens to the podcast Walking Along Sandbanks Beach. I think that's that posh bit of Dorset where Harry Redknapp lives, unless there's another Sandbanks uh, somewhere else. Anyway, Kevin uh, says, I've voted Conservative since 1974. In disgust at the repositioning of the Tory party into UKIP territory since 2019, I voted Lib Dem. There we go again, Leslie. See that Lib Dems are picking up support again and will probably continue to do so whilst Boris and his chums occupy their current nationalist inward-looking position. Notwithstanding the 2019 election outcome, do you think that with the sub subsequent reality of Brexit, there are sufficient number of folk like me whose desertion from the Conservatives might impact on their future success? Uh, well, thank you for that, Kevin, because it's so interesting. Again, we heard from some traditional Tory voters in that by-election seat in the podcast last week who said that they uh, voted for the Lib Dems not because of the housing plans for the Tories, although to go back to Rob Watson's point, what a vivid example of how when you try and address the housing issue, it becomes politically and electrically, electrally difficult. Um, but over integrity, that was the reasons a couple of voters from the by-election told us lot on the podcast uh, why they switched from the Tories to the Lib Dems. Kevin, you're doing it as a response to Brexit and UKIP-ish nationalism, which is fascinating because when you think about it, there must be quite a big constituency of Conservative support who agreed more with the likes of Ken Clark, Philip Hammond, Oliver Letwin, Rory Stewart, all of whom were famously kicked out of the Conservative Parliamentary Party in the autumn of 2019 when Johnson first came in. And, uh, it, I mean, none of them could be accused of being left-wing insurrectionaries. Uh, Philip Hammond we're talking about here. But they represent a strand of Tory thinking that, like Kevin, must be disillusioned now. And it is interesting that at the moment their vehicle of choice are the Lib Dems. Uh, so maybe that will lead to a greater level of Lib Dem support. It begs questions about whether Kevin and others, I mean, it wouldn't probably be of relevance in his constituency, but whether in some constituencies such types would be willing to switch to a Labour Party under Starmer. Because only Labour can be an alternative 
government at the next election. And at the moment, the Labour Party seems incapable of converting anyone to its cause from other parties. Uh, Will not wholly, actually. Um, in fairness, uh, some of the local election results suggest a kind of fascinating rearranging of the political landscape in which Labour do well in the cities, in places like Oxfordshire and Cambridgeshire and places like that, um, whilst the Red Wall goes to the Tories. But uh, it's, th th there is clearly a section of the Tory party, of which Kevin is one, or used to be, um, that is not going to vote for the Johnson version of Toryism, uh, the kind of David Frost, Lord Frosty Frost version of Toryism. So thank you very much indeed for that, Kevin. Um, I'm so busy with the stories around Hancock getting ready for King's Place Monday night, tomorrow night, tonight, whatever, you know, when you're listening to this, that if it's okay with you, I'm going to stop now. Just a reminder again, at King's Place, live in the hall and live streamed, uh, we're going to make predictions, which will prove to be wholly unreliable, all of us. Uh, there'll be time for live questions, live points, and I'll be reflecting on the wider issues around the Hancock saga, not just the drama and what that tells us, but about the impact on the pandemic policies uh, and the NHS. Big, big proposals for the NHS scheduled to be published this week and so on. There's a lot there in the Hancock saga. We won't ignore the sex, of course. That will be high up. And other things too. And then say lots of questions and unreliable predictions uh, with ramifications, which we will then explore. So it'll be action-packed and fun. So get a drink if you're watching it on the stream or whatever. But first of all, you'll need to buy the tickets, and they're on that King's Place website. And I will leave a link with the blurb on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. There will be oh, so much by the time we all gather next week. But first of all, see you Monday night, King's Place, virtually or live, in the hall. Either way, we're going to have an interesting time and a bit of fun as well. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. Keep running, baking, ironing, all the things that you do. But above all, keep on listening. Thank you very much. See you next time. Bye.